listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 58 of Descent's Belaboured Podcast. It is summer and Congress is on its paid vacation right now, but most of the rest of Americans are not. As a new petition by the Vacation Equality Project points out, the United States is the only advanced economy, which is a term of some debate, but still, in the world that doesn't guarantee some paid vacation time for working people. They're aiming to change that with a petition to the White House that already has 13,000 signatures as of our recording time. Of course, it wouldn't be America if there wasn't a story of profits behind this petition. The Vacation Equality Project, which has a very nice civil rights-y sounding name, was started by Hotels.com, which of course makes money when people go on vacation. There was also a bill in Congress sponsored by Florida Congressman Alan Grayson that would guarantee U.S. workers at least a week of paid vacation. One that he says came to him while he was at Disney World, which is conveniently located in his congressional district. Still, what will we see next? Hotels and resorts starting petitions for an increase in the minimum wage so that more people can afford to take the vacation time that they do have? Still, this is one of those rare moments where I agree with the corporate shills. Americans work too damn much and we all deserve a vacation. So, uh, speaking of people without paid vacation, uh, a new survey by the Restaurant Opportunity Center of New York, together with uh, Food First and the Food Chain Workers Alliance, has found that among restaurant workers surveyed in the Bay Area in New York City, about one in three suffer from food insecurity. That means they have trouble accessing an adequate amount of food at an affordable price in socially acceptable ways. Essentially, that's the USDA definition for people who are on the verge of going hungry. Um, But since this is America and we're an advanced economy, we don't talk about hunger among our own people. Uh, So we use terms like food insecurity instead. What's notable about this um, is, of course, the glaring irony of workers who are serving, preparing, you know, just being around the food that we eat all day, uh, who themselves have trouble procuring food for themselves and their families. The food insecurity rate, in fact, is an estimated double the food insecurity rate in the general workforce as a whole. And this uh, also showed that one in five of those surveyed relied on government food assistance, such as food stamps, right? Um, uh, The same percentage depended on uh, restaurant food because they couldn't get access to decent meals at home. This also severely limited the choices that they had in terms of getting good food. 36% felt that their incomes did not allow for adequate access to culturally appropriate foods. Um, Many also felt that they could not eat as many fruits and vegetables um, as they wanted to. And lest you think that those shishi organic and sustainable restaurants have a better track record of giving their own workers enough to live on, um, they actually found that an extraordinarily high percentage of workers at so-called organic green sustainable restaurants in the Bay Area are having trouble sustaining themselves. So um, just goes to show you that, you know, among the many paradoxes of our extraordinarily unequal economy, we have food workers who can't get enough to eat. We talked a lot on this podcast about the predatory education reform movement, which has pushed charter schools as an alternative to traditional public schools, in large part as an end run around teachers' unions. Teachers' unions, for their part, have been trying in some cases simultaneously to fight the expansion of charter schools and to unionize the ones that already exist. This week, we heard about some charter school teachers in Massachusetts that did manage to join a union, not, however, one of the major teachers' unions, but rather the Teamsters. 
That's right, 80 teachers and guidance counselors at the Advanced Math and Science Academy Charter School in Marlboro, Massachusetts, joined Teamsters Local 170 in Worcester, a 4,000-member local that mostly represents truck and bus drivers and warehouse workers. The election was certified on July 16th, making them the first charter school teachers in the country to join the Teamsters, and only the third charter school in Massachusetts to be unionized. The teachers didn't give specific reasons for why they joined the Teamsters, but their press release did say that they looked at other unions and decided to go with Local 170. Jessica Bowen, one of the teachers quoted, said, I see how vulnerable workers can be without unions. I'm a history teacher, so I studied the labor movement, but in an academic sense. To see how it works firsthand is eye-opening. The Teamsters were so positive, and every time we asked questions, we got answers. It felt right, like we now have the support we needed. It's worth noting, though, that the Massachusetts Teachers Association, newly run by Barbara Mattaloni, who won election this summer as part of a progressive caucus within the union, has passed a resolution to organize charter schools, so maybe the Math and Science Academy won't be the last. And the White House uh, has announced yet another executive order that will make it harder for federal contractors to violate workers' rights. Think Progress reports that under this new order, which is expected to be signed uh, by the White House soon, the White House will essentially take federal contractors and prioritize companies with clean records over those that abuse their workers' rights when weighing contract bids. Uh, In addition, each executive branch agency will have a specific bureaucrat in charge of determining whether a company's lapses rise to the level of a lack of integrity or business ethics. So uh, that seems like a bit of a slippery slope, but who knows? Maybe they'll root out some bad actors there. Essentially, this is part of a broader trend that we've seen from the Obama administration. He's uh, acting unilaterally because our completely useless Congress is totally deadlocked and cannot pass anything. So, you know, while he's fending off a law, lawsuit that is trying to block him from being anything close to useful as president, he's doing his best to sign some executive orders that will make life less miserable for a lot of these uh, employees at federal contracting firms. The order is essentially designed to be the job quality end of uh, an earlier initiative that he started with raising the minimum wage to $10.10 an hour for um, several hundred thousand uh, federal contract workers. These are the folks who provide services at federal buildings and tourist sites, such as, you know, the um, concession stand workers at national monuments, janitors, and the like. And uh, it comes on the heels of a lot of protests and strikes over the past year or so by contract workers supported by unions. And it's one step forward, but it unfortunately falls far short of what labor advocates are really pushing for, which is a nationwide cross-the-board hike in the minimum wage. And according to a report by Demos, about 2 million federal contract workers do not earn a living wage, and many of those will not be touched by the new $10.10 raise. So the new executive order, um, you know, helps penalize companies that violate workers' rights, but, you know, that should really be something that's already kind of in the law, since they're already (laughs) violating labor law, but I'm not really sure why we need a totally new executive order to, like, get the government to follow the law, but it's an interesting tactic. We'll see what comes of this strategy. I think Progress reports Obama's use of executive order to combat congressional inaction on his legislative priorities has angered Republicans so much they just voted to sue him over the practice. So while that drama is going on, um, maybe we can look forward to, you know, the president doing some other things at the stroke of his 
famous pen. Unfortunately, what we really need is legislation, as in like real laws, to raise standards for workers across the board. And also a lot of CEOs of federal contractors, according to Demos, collectively pull in uh, more than $23 billion a year in executive compensation, and that's supported by our tax dollars. So nothing we can do about that for now, but at least federal workers will um, have a slightly higher wage floor and a little bit more leeway when it comes to workers' rights. So, uh, as you probably know by now, the National Labor Relations Board General Counsel just certified McDonald's as a joint employer of the legions of low-wage fast food workers across the country. Prior to this, McDonald's has been able to slough off its responsibilities uh, for its labor conditions at its stores by saying that they're not the actual employer. First, we're going to hear a clip from a conference call following the general counsel's decision. This is Richard Eicher. He is a longtime McDonald's employee, and he's talking about uh, what it's like to work at a McDonald's franchise operation, and he details here just how much control McDonald's, that is McDonald's, the big old company on top of the labor supply chain, how much control they have over the working conditions that he has to deal with every day. I have worked for McDonald's in Kansas City for 25 years. And for the last 18 years, for the same franchisee. I work in maintenance, mopping the floors, cleaning the bathrooms, scrubbing grease out of the fry vats, and taking out the trash. And from what I've seen over 25 years, leaves no doubt in my mind that federal government's determination is right. The store where I work is owned by McDonald's. The company makes a profit by charging hefty rent to the franchisees. I have no choice but to pay the asking price. And mine is a signature store, which means it's a big moneymaker. I'm on the first in line to get upgrades. Not because the franchisee wants to remodel, but corporate demands it or they'll evict. A representative from McDonald's shows up at my store five to six times a year. Sometimes the rep stands outside the drive-thru counting cars, timing each sale, because the faster the workers work, the more customers they serve, the more profits they make. The reps ask management how new products are selling and what the profit margins are and they wander through the kitchen to see if workers are making burgers according to the prescription and speed set by corporate. Managers go crazy when corporate comes in for these inspections, but sometimes they don't even know when they are happening. Corporate regulars send secret shoppers to our store. They visit the drive through or come in the store to place orders, and they look at how long it takes to get served, whether servers are smiling and greeting properly, whether advertising is correctly displayed. Once a month, managers get reports from these secret shoppers, and there are repercussions if, for example, a drive order took too long to fill. People have been suspended for a negative review from secret shoppers, which might mean it took more than two minutes to fill a drive order. But perhaps the worst thing is the corporate computer system, which gives up-to-minute reports on labors and sales. Managers are pushing all the time to bring down costs. If I work ten minutes past my shift, they ask me, what am I still doing in the store? I have heard comments that labor is too high. And when that happens, people get sent home. They simply say, labor is too high. Richard, we need to let you go. Some may think who my boss is is just a technicality, but it matters. After 25 years, I make 11.05 an hour, which is about 600 per paycheck. My rent is 730 a month. My mother just moved into a nursing home, so I no longer have her Social Security payments to help me. So now I'm going to have to move. McDonald's says it's not a boss, but it certainly acts like one. Setting rules and controlling just about every aspect of its stores that the only thing franchises can skimp on 
is wages. Franchisees would pay more if they could, I'm sure of it, but they're hamstrung. This determination by the NLRB could help us hold McDonald's accountable for wage theft and other labor abuses and make it easier for us to form a union without retaliation. Maybe now the company will stop pinning our poor treatment on franchisees and pay us a wage that we can live on. Thank you. And that was Richard Eicher, a veteran McDonald's employee, talking about the labor conditions at his store. So we're going to talk today to Catherine Ruckelshaus. She is general counsel at the National Employment Law Project, and she's done a lot of research on what the joint employer status means, what it means for labor relations at big fast food franchises like McDonald's and perhaps in other sectors of the workforce. We've heard a lot about the ruling from the NLRB's general counsel, but can you explain a little bit what that is, what the difference between this and a ruling from the board is. I think there's a little bit of confusion about just what actually happened here. Yes, and, and it should be, um, you know, clarified that I haven't seen anything in writing from the general counsel because it's not a public document, but this is a directive from the NLRB's general counsel out to its regional directors where there are pe- claims pending. And the directive apparently says to the regional directors who are going to be adjudicating these claims that it's possible to find McDonald's to be a joint employer along with its franchisees. And presumably the directive lays out some sort of guidepost for the regional directors to figure out based on the facts they have before them whether or not there is a joint employment relationship. How big a deal is this for the fast food workers movement? Yeah, I think it's really important. It's It can really buttress the workers' claims that they need McDonald's to be involved in their workplace conditions, uh, in fixing the workplace conditions, because it was clear to the workers, and now the general counsel, the NLRB, agrees, at least in some of these cases, that the franchisees aren't in a position to fix the problems in the workplace without McDonald's. And so I think that's a really important message both to McDonald's but also for the workers to know that they have some remedies available to them and and they won't just be negotiating or trying to get these problems fixed with the the franchisees. In terms of how the franchise system actually works on the ground, can you explain how this franchise arrangement affects the working conditions per se, such as, you know, how does it affect, say, wage levels? Um, How does it reflect how scheduling is done? Um, Many workers have, say, complained of unhealthier, um, you know, dangerous working conditions. Yeah, I mean, I think this is just based on what I've read, because I haven't seen the charges, but I have looked at complaints that the workers filed in these wage and hour lawsuits around the country, and they describe a relationship between McDonald's and its franchisees that is very close and that it's a relationship where McDonald's exercises and retains the right to exercise a lot of control over what's going on in its franchisees. And so it has things like technology software that permits McDonald's to view when revenues are coming in, meaning customers have come in, and then what the labor costs are. So how many workers are on the clock when those revenues are coming in, and it can send directives down to its franchises telling certain workers not to clock in 
or to clock out if it's a slow period because it doesn't want to incur the labor costs when the revenues aren't coming in. That's one example. And that's a very close control by McDonald's over the hours and the schedules of its workers in various franchise, franchises around the country. It also imposes lots of controls and the right to control in its franchise contracts and its agreements with the franchises around pricing and costs. Um, so it impacts, it directly impacts the franchise's ability to run a business and to turn a profit if it can. So it, it really hampers the franchisee's ability to, to run a business the way a regular small business would run. It was an interview with a franchise owner in the Washington Post this week, and she has testified also that McDonald's explicitly told her, you guys can make more money if you pay your employees less. It seems like the franchise system sort of treats labor costs as this wiggle room for franchisees. They have a certain amount that they have to make and to pay McDonald's. They have a certain amount they'll have to spend on food costs. And so this idea that, like, well, they can, you know, make more money if they just pay people less is really key. She told the Post that if McDonald's workers unionized, I think the biggest negative effect would be that corporations couldn't suck as much money off the top. I guess what I want to know is how this ruling would potentially impact this ability for McDonald's to, you know, treat labor costs as the wiggle room that their franchisees have. Yeah, I mean, I think that is kind of the fundamental problem with these structures in in, in this case. It, not all franchising results in bad working conditions in the franchisees, but here in this case, there were lots of claims filed around the country. So it's clear that McDonald's is squeezing its franchises very hard, and some of the franchisees are starting to fight back and saying, this isn't fair, we can't do this, it's impossible for us to to be above board and comply with the law, but also make our ends meet. So I think it's an example of, and especially in the case where McDonald's told the franchise operator that she could pay her workers less, that McDonald's is just getting too greedy in terms of what it's trying to extract from its franchise operations. It can certainly enter into some of these agreements and have still be very profitable, but not require this kind of return from the franchises, it ends up being on the backs of the workers. Yeah, there's a bill in the California state legislature that would narrow the ability for a franchisor like McDonald's to terminate the franchisee's relationship. It's backed by franchisees like this woman who talked to the Washington Post, but also by SEIU, which is the union that's backing the fast food movement. So do you think that giving the small business owner franchisees more power would help the workers, or could that end up backfiring on them? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just important for the the franchise owners to be sophisticated enough and able enough to run an operation that complies with the law. So if you presume that most franchise operators go into these relationships wanting to to comply with the law and uh, earn, earn back their money and possibly turn a profit, then then they should be able to do that, and McDonald's shouldn't be able to hamper them doing that by squeezing them and having these onerous requirements in their franchise agreements. 
In terms of just where franchising operations fall in this whole sort of ecosystem of different outsourcing arrangements, uh, I know that you've done a lot of research on different forms of labor outsourcing, um, whether it's, you know, things like so-called independent contractors or the outright misclassification of contract workers, um, temp workers, uh, staffing agencies. Um, can you talk about sort of this general like labor landscape where we have these uh, this the whole population of contingent workers who are basically anything but actually employed by the companies that are essentially paying them. Yeah, I mean, I think franchising is another example of what we're calling outsourcing, but it can be called temping, uh, subcontracting, contracting out. It's where businesses decide that they're going to contract out parts of their core business. And McDonald's and a lot of the other fast food chains decided that a long time ago, just like the garment industry did, the agricultural industry has, the janitorial industry has, they've decided to contract out some of the labor-intensive parts of their businesses to another entity. Um, and, And there's a wide range of reasons why they do that, but franchising isn't any different from any of those other arrangements where there's a contract between the lead company, in this case McDonald's, and the other uh, the other contractor, and sometimes there's more than another contractor. There might be a temper staffing firm inserted in there someplace. Um, and so these arrangements are increasingly common in our economy, and you see them with a lot of the low-wage sectors, and it can end up resulting in very low wages and poor working conditions for the employees because there's not as much accountability the more layers and levels you have. Mm-hmm. And you have that sort of who's the boss problem where each um, employer, or each company is sort of passing the buck to the other guy and saying well, they're responsible and I'm not, right? So, right, that's right. Right. Um, and just to be clear, I mean, these... Uh, I mean, I've seen some examples in which, you know, you had people who were full-time employees and then they get sort of rehired as temp workers or as contract workers. So is this in a way, I mean, would you say it's perhaps a tactic that some corporations are using to make their workforces more marginal, um, you know, weaken their collective power as a workforce or, you know, even, you know, union busting, things like that? Yeah, I mean, I think sometimes that, as you mentioned, the employers just call their workers non-employees. They might call them an independent contractor. They might call them a freelancer or some other name, a consultant, a franchisee, even janitorial companies are starting to call individual janitorial workers franchisees to, to skirt the labor and employment protections that are required for employees. And that that's bad for workers, um, and it's also bad for employers who are trying to compete with those businesses because they end up saving a lot of money. But then there's these subcontracting arrangements like these franchising in McDonald's where the workers are clearly somebody's employees, but, but there, it's not clear to the worker who the employer is and who's responsible um, so there's there's kind of a myriad of ways that businesses are either inserting subcontractors or franchises between them and the workers to potentially evade these responsibilities, or they're calling workers non-employees uh, to evade the responsibilities. So this ruling applies to McDonald's and in potentially other employers in the franchise system. But what are some of its potential applications to these other forms of contingent labor, um, these other places where we have this who's the boss problem? 
And is there potential for some of these new tech economy companies like TaskRabbit and Lyft, these sort of match a worker with a gig apps to be held responsible as co-employers for the conditions they create? Um, Yes. I mean, I think the joint employer determination isn't new. The general counsel of the NLRB and the NLRB itself has done this in several, I mean, multiple cases over the decades since the act was first passed. So, So that part isn't new. I think what is getting attention to this ruling or this determination is that it's it's a recognizable franchise and people don't normally think that a, a, a corporation like McDonald's would be responsible for the franchise operations, but it's not a new concept and it's certainly been applied already in janitorial cases at the NLRB and temp and staffing firm cases. There's one pending before the NLRB right now um, that's a recycling company out in California. So it's a common finding um, that can, I think it's just because this is a relatively uh, recognizable arrangement, then it's going to give other people ideas and possibly hope for for getting more leverage and trying to improve the conditions. I think for the workers like the ones who are working for TaskRabbit or Mechanical Turk or Lyft or Uber, it's um, those are oftentimes questions about whether or not the worker's an employee or not. And then if they are an employee, who's the responsible employer or employers? So I think that's going to play out as um, as working conditions become a problem for those workers if there's a workers' compensation problem or we've already heard of some accidents in Lyft and Uber um, and there's a question of whether or not the worker can get covered by workers' comp, for instance. So I think we're going to start seeing some complaints and some of these questions played out in in these newer economy, shared economy kinds of jobs, and some of them already have been. But in in those, it's going to be the same application. It's going to be, are you an employee as defined under these labor and employment laws? And if you are an employee, who's responsible as your employer? Just to clarify here, the issue uh, before the NLRB right now is primarily these cases that involve retaliation uh, against workers for some of their organizing efforts, right, or or alleged retaliation um, when they went on strike and things of that nature, right? That's right. They were they filed unfair labor practice charges, which is in these cases are mostly about the the retaliation that happened. Right. And I understand that in some of these civil suits that are still pending, McDonald's is already named as an empl- a joint employer. Um, so you know those sort of wage and hour violations claims uh, can still go forward. Um, you know, a- apart from this uh, NLRB case. Yeah, the judges haven't ruled on whether or not McDonald's is properly named as a joint employer in those wage and hour cases, but they certainly have been alleged and and named as a jointly responsible party in the cases. There just haven't been any rulings yet. Right, right. So there are still a number of legal avenues that they might be able to pursue. Strictly speaking on the uh, on the issue of labor organizing um, in fast food, um, how do you think these sort of outsourced employment structures affect 
organizing in workplaces. Um, for instance, you know, how much more difficult is it for workers at franchise operations to, say, uh, start a union? Um, you know, how would, how does this affect um, their access to things like collective bargaining? I mean, uh, you know, it, it seems pretty clear that McDonald's can use this as a tactic to ensure that they are not held liable as employers. But what does it mean about the ability for all of their workers to uh, unite collectively? Yeah, so it's harder for the workers if McDonald's isn't at the table because, because as, as we've been talking, the McDonald's has the right to control lots of aspects of what's going on in the franchise. So if the workers are just negotiating with the franchisees, the franchisees aren't going to have enough power to, to fix all of the problems or even give the workers everything or some of the things that they're asking for without McDonald's agreeing to amend its agreements with the franchises or change its practices. So the workers would not be able to get fully what they would be after in bargaining without McDonald's at the table. That would be one problem if you don't have McDonald's at the table. Um, And another potential problem is that... um, it's piecemeal. You know, one franchise might have 10 workers and another franchise might have 20 or 25. Some of the franchises, I understand, are fairly large because they they join together and they have several, uh, one owner with several stores, but it, it makes it much more difficult for the workers to get traction and to get some momentum if they have to do it essentially store by store. On the issue of collective bargaining, um would you say that I mean, could this potentially complicate um, labor relations if they do try to enter into negotiations with McDonald's? I can imagine maybe there are a couple of you know kind-hearted franchise owners out there who perhaps would welcome a union at their individual outlet. But you know, if McDonald's is at the table, then they're up against a much more savvier, economically better resourced um, boss. So I don't know. I, I mean, does this present uh, new challenges in a way um, if, uh, if the workers do try to organize against McDonald's? Yeah, I mean, I think unions are contending with that all the time now. In whenever there's more than one employer, if there's a joint employer scenario, they oftentimes don't choose to bring in the other employer because of the reasons you're mentioning, but also sometimes under the NLRB law or rules, you have to have consent from both employers to collectively bargain. So there there can be some challenges, and sometimes there's positive aspects of bringing in both employers, but other times unions decide not to do that when they're when they're bargaining um, for for the reasons you were mentioning. And just to finish up, um, in your report, who's the boss? Um, for the National Employment Law Project. Uh, towards the end, you actually provided some policy recommendations and some examples of even uh, private negotiated agreements that certain workplaces have used to mitigate some of the um, effects of uh, these outsourcing arrangements. Um, you know, for instance, workers have been able to uh, empower themselves in the workplace and give themselves more control over their working conditions through uh, certain, you know, labor codes of conduct. There are some uh, policies such as uh, automatic pre- presumption of employment employment that will basically, you know, sort of pre-certify someone as a joint employer, as, you know, the official employer so that workers do know who's boss before, you know, they they get into a confrontation. Can you explain how those might work and and maybe even if they, some of those might be applied to um, franchise situation like McDonald's? 
Yeah, I mean, I think some of the ones you listed, uh, um, really almost all of the ones that you've listed could be applied to these McDonald's kinds of situations. You could have, uh, you know, a code of conduct that McDonald's signs with all of its franchisees that lay out certain uh, practices and provisions that would end up supporting and um, in improving working conditions in, in, the, in the different stores. Uh, some state laws that right now um, require the worksite employer and the joint employer who's using uh, the worksite employer's workers to be jointly responsible. And there's, um, there's a presumption that they're jointly responsible. So you could write in franchise arrangements as those, into those state laws that, that now exist. And then there could just simply be better enforcement of our existing laws because as the NLRB determination makes pretty clear, all labor and employment laws already permit joint employer relationships to be found and you can enforce against both or either of the joint employers. So if more of the agencies that enforce these laws um, would enforce them and, and use the statutes as they're intended, then you could you could capture more of these franchising arrangements when there are problems in the workplace. Not to mention workers have like a, you know, already have protections in terms of their right to organize at their workplace. So, I mean, that's already right. on the books, right? I right. mean, that's right. something that should be enforced against an employer, at least, whoever it is. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I think what you just said is important to remember, too, is none of these workers are in a union. There's no union around asking for bargaining or recognition. These were just workers who came together to, to fight for better working conditions, and then they were retaliated against. So they're protected by the National Labor Relations Act, even though there's no, there's no union there. And I think a lot of people don't know that and don't understand that. So I think this case is important for that reason, too, because it shows that unorganized workers can still go to the National Labor Relations Board for relief. And that was Catherine Ruckel's house, and we will put a link to her research on the Descent website. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now we're going to hear some audio from the Fast Food Workers Convention in Chicago on July 25th and 26th. There, over 1,300 fast food workers from across the country convened to plan their next steps in the fast food workers movement, and we'll be hearing more from them, hopefully, in the coming months. Everyone in this room has been a leader in their individual cities. This movement you're in is so important. I need everybody to take this experience, go home, and you tell the other workers what we do. That I can see y'all, and I know that I got an army behind me, not just, you know, some pity pants some people gonna halfway do it. I know if I'm going all the way, I know y'all gonna go all the way with me. If you make a living wage, guess what? You're gonna spend the money. And if you spend the money, it goes into the economy. And if it goes into the economy, then the economy goes up. And if the economy goes up, everybody goes up. We gonna stand up and we gonna stick together like they did. And we gonna show them this how we get down. We're gonna win this if we keep fighting, we can't stop. You tell them that we training to come get them, to come take them out of the floor. 
mind working. But after I work, I want to be able to live and feed my children and pay my rent and put gas in my car and every now and then fix my hair. Stand up if you know that you are willing to do whatever it takes to win. This is everybody's favorite part of the podcast, where we say, "Arg! I wish I'd written that. This week, or rather last week, I was fascinated by a report by Sophia Resnick at RH Reality Check. Hobby Lobby allegedly fired employee due to pregnancy. And as the headline says, this piece is an investigation into the firing of a pregnant Hobby Lobby worker. Yes, that Hobby Lobby, the one from the recent Supreme Court decision that we discussed on episode 56, that sued to make sure it didn't have to pay for its employees' birth control. So you might think that it would be supportive of those same employees then having the babies it didn't want to allow them to prevent themselves from having. But Felicia Allen applied for medical leave from her Hobby Lobby job in Flowood, Mississippi, when she was nine months pregnant. She'd found out that she was four months pregnant shortly after being hired at the store and was worried that she wouldn't qualify for leave under the Federal Family Medical Leave Act. That law mandates 12 weeks of unpaid leave for workers at qualified workplaces who have been there for more than one year. For more than that, on that, you can listen to our episode 51 with Ellen Bravo. But Allen says that instead of getting her unpaid medical leave, she was fired and told to reapply for her job after the child was born. When she did so, they did not bring her back. And if that's not bad enough, the company said that she quit rather than take the offered leave, which originally served to deny her the ability to get unemployment benefits. Oh, and her lawsuit against the company for pregnancy discrimination, which is in fact illegal, was dropped because Hobby Lobby requires its employees to sign a binding arbitration agreement when they come to work. Yes, this same company that famously took its lawsuit all the way to the Supreme Court cuts off its workers' rights to sue it. Arbitration is a growing tactic used by employers in many cases and has been found to have a significantly lower win rate for employees than an actual courtroom struggle. Hobby Lobby's arbitration policy also allows for a Christian-influenced arbitration, but its treatment of a pregnant worker doesn't seem very Christian. Anybody out there had to sign an arbitration agreement on the job? We would like to hear from you. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored or email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. Ah, Javi Lavi, where every sperm is precious, but babies, not so much. My pick for ARG is um, a bit of a digression from our usual format, but it's a joint statement from the Coalition of Labor for Palestine titled Stop the War on Gaza, No Arms for Apartheid Israel, Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions. So you probably know by now that the Boycott, Divestment, Sanctions campaign is uh, going strong. And during the most recent war on Gaza, um, which is actually you know, sort of more or less still ongoing, though um, the, there's been an actual withdrawal of troops um, by the time you will hear this podcast, 
the Labor for Palestine Coalition uh, issued a statement representing unions from all across the world, um, basically condemning Israel's actions. And they write, as workers and trade unionists, we join with Palestinian trade unions, Congress of South African Trade Unions, Unite from the UK, Ireland, and labor organizations around the world to urgently condemn Israel's barbaric war in Gaza, which has taken thousands of lives since 2006, including many hundreds in recent weeks. With them, we support boycott divestment sanctions, which demands an end to the Israeli military occupation of the 1967 territories, full equality for Palestinian citizens of Israel, and the right of return for Palestinian refugees as affirmed by UN Resolution 194. Um, among their demands are calling on the U.S. government and its allies to end all aid to Israel, calling on workers to emulate the dockers in South Africa, India, Sweden, Norway, Turkey, and the U.S. West Coast, uh, sort of a bastion of labor progressivism in the U.S., and elsewhere by refusing to handle military or any other cargo destined for Israel. They lastly call on labor bodies to divest from Israel bonds and cut ties with the Histradut, uh, Israel's racist labor federation. Among the labor bodies signing this are uh, the United Union, uh, the um, NC Public Service Workers Union, um, many individuals, labor scholars from AFT, as well as other U.S. unions. Primarily, a lot of the support for BDS is actually, in terms of the international trade union movement, has come from outside the United States. But uh, this coalition is hoping to change all that. And if you think that BDS is not a labor issue, it's worth noting here that BDS is actually increasingly being framed as an economic justice struggle. And as Andrew Ross said in a very interesting piece in New Labor Forum recently, there's a long history of boycotts, uh, labor strikes, and all sorts of collective actions involving working people, whether it's on the consumption side or on the labor side, to basically make political statements through the mobilization of labor or through the wielding of their political leverage as consumers. So um, just as the boycott aspect is a way of withdrawing your money from uh, operations that support Israel and um, businesses in the Israeli settlements and whatnot, the withdrawal of labor is another way for working people to take stand against the occupation and to essentially militate against uh, foreign policies that they find abhorrent. Um, it, and it, another way in which it's an economic justice issue is that there are real concrete labor struggles going on in Palestine right now. And while many boycott campaigns are often you know, criticized for hurting working people, uh, BDS actually has wide support from Palestine Palestinian trade unions. So I recommend that everyone take a look at the statement um, and also take a look at uh, Andrew Ross's uh, wise words on the history of the labor struggle. And he also notes here that U.S. labor in particular, particularly led by the AFL-CAO and the Solidarity Center, has a rather ugly past of supporting imperialistic and reactionary foreign policies. So uh, supporting you know progressive positions by international labor bodies is one way to sort of push back against that legacy, correct historical wrongs, and show solidarity with people who are struggling on the ground right now. And that's all for this week. Uh, we encourage you to email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. You can also tweet at us at the hashtag belabored, and we'd love to hear from you if you've uh, been caught up in an arbitrary arbitration arrangement or if you are a franchise employee who's looking to hold your boss accountable um, or if you have an experience at the BDS campaign like to share your, um, you know, your insight on what the labor movement can do 
you to support that campaign. We welcome your comments. Thanks for tuning in. You have to understand. You have to be quiet. You dare to struggle, you dare to win, and you dare not to struggle, and goddamn, you don't deserve to win. Maybe you should be serious, and you're willing to fight for it. Fight for it. CEOs getting mega paid while you barely making minimum wage. The first time I put that pit to a pace when I realized I couldn't be the government slave. I got the same attitude from back in the day. Now I got bigger bills, bigger problems to deal with, but I'm still sick. Lance Armstrong being broke is a position that ain't that comfy. What's on the menu? Bread and lunch meat, and I ain't even getting paid till next week. It's getting cold, so it's time to invest in heat. The streets cold, so I had to invest in heat. They sleep on technique, so I bless these beasts. And I ain't even gotta explain how stressed I be. Life ain't perfect, but it's all worth it. So systematic, be part of that circuit. Robotic at work when I'm counting them pyramids. If you're naive, then I know you ain't hearing this. Hundreds of years, everybody been fearing this. Greedy ass system that's coming to an end. I got bills galore. Am I the only person in this room that's fed up? No. Obama, man, I'm trying to get paid, but can we please get a raise on minimum wage? Yo, what up, AD? What up, Adonis? Let's be honest, we're all fed up. I can care less about an overhyped election. If it ain't gonna put a country in the right direction, Republican or Democrat, real talk, who gives a crap? A big soap opera. Every time they televise, you know they be telling lies. Everything is getting high except our wages. How we supposed to live a lives if we're just laden? All we get is minimum. System keeps on killing us. President don't give a fuck. His foreign policy is gonna trigger World War Three. Messing up our reputation, killing other countries, forcing our beliefs like a super dictator. When we can barely solve the problems in our own neighborhoods, put our troops anywhere to get the dirty work done. So the military, I would never sign up for. Cause I'm worth more than the pawn in your operation. My voice will ring until I wake the world's population. Refuse to be a modest slave to society. So come my sister, hit her with the melody. You know two gallons of gas in this state equal one hour pay at minimum wage? Yeah, maybe I'm just thinking too hard. Maybe me and my folks ain't really that poor. In one of these countries of the third world, I couldn't complain. My dollar would be worth more, but how to worth a five dollar in our own country at issue? All our bills gotta come up off the dollar menu. Beautiful truth, I'ma make the whole world hear you. Beautiful truth, I'ma make the whole world feel you. How you gon' fight capitalism being quiet? How you gon' fight racism? How you gon' fight the man when you ain't got no plan? How you gon' live your life when your ass won't fight? Don't say what you don't like if you just let shit pass back. Don't say that you a radical if you ain't built that life. Rebel against them if they try to take your rights. But stay at home and join no cable with minute rights. Hey, cuz this fight that we got is on us. Show these CEOs who's boss who they try to show us. Show up, cuz this country was built on just us. But even Lil Reese know in this struggle it's just us. So grab through familia y dile a lucha. Estamos peleando todos los diablos que son nuestros jefes y gobierno. No podemos retirarnos, somos de Chicago. This life is hard, so hard I must go. So-called oppressors, no, we're at your throat. This life